Okay, let's begin by opening to Colossians 2, 13 to 15 once again. Let's get the passage before us, both as a reminder and as an anticipation of going a little deeper. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, we used a reversed paradigm last time based on the Apostle Paul's vocabulary in these three verses. Vocabulary, which we pointed out, is vocabulary of reversal. We did that in order to describe the gift of redemption in history accomplished for us by our vicarious or substitutionary Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished this reversal in his own history, and in so doing, takes us with him. He is acting on our behalf. He is performing in our place. He is working out our salvation for our sake. So he tastes death and is made alive in his history so that we who are dead may be made alive in him in our history. As sinless Savior, he is deemed sinful in his history so we who are sinful may be deemed forgiven of sin in him in our history. He assumes the debt due to the law in his history, so we who owe the debt may have our IOU canceled and paid in full in him in our history. He is nailed to the cross as worthy of condemnation in his history, so that we who stand condemned may be justified in him in our history. He condescends to be paraded in the throes of the powers and authorities of death and sin and guilt and condemnation. He agrees to be scorned and ridiculed, marched in this parade of evil powers so that we who deserve that parade may be marched in his victory parade over the very powers of evil when he strips and disarms them openly displaying his mighty and eternal victory over them. His people following in his train, in his victorious victory in their history, as he is victorious in their history. Now, we set out those patterns last time. I summarized them in order to get this pattern of reversal once again in the front of our minds. But today... We want to build on this reverse redemptive historical paradigm, but with a different tack. 
We want to deepen our understanding of the reverse paradigm by considering a narrative pattern. In particular, we want to consider the narrative pattern of the life of Saul of Tarsus become Paul on the Damascus Road. Your outline takes you into the perception of Saul become Paul with respect to several narrative elements which are listed on the outline, elements which we want to take in. We want to absorb them. We want to perceive them. We want to penetrate them. We want to understand them. You will notice that I have labeled these positions position and opposition. Position and opposition. A position and that which is opposed to the position. Opposition. That position and opposition goes through a reversal itself. A narrative change. A narrative reversal. And so I've included the category narrative, change in story, change in history, change in narrative biography, narrative and anti-narrative. Narrative and the opposite narrative. Narrative and the narrative which is against the original narrative. We have two narratives. One narrative which Saul of Tarsus embraced, believed, possessed in his mind, in his emotions, in his whole being. And we have another anti-narrative which he subsequently came to embrace, to believe, to possess, to be energized by it, a narrative of reversal. So, what would you label the reversal on your outline, which is between position and opposition, between narrative and anti-narrative? How would you label that category? What makes the difference between Saul of Tarsus and Paul of the Damascus Road? Okay. Well, I wasn't here last week, so I don't know if you talked about it, but it's what happened on the Damascus Road. Which is what? His conversion. Which is he what? Saw, he saw Jesus. He saw what kind of Jesus? The light. What kind of Jesus did he see? The risen Jesus. The risen Jesus, yes. It is the resurrection of Christ, which is the key to the reversal. So now we want to look at how Paul perceived Jesus before the resurrection Christophany or manifestation of Christ to him on the Damascus Road. And then we want to contrast that. It will be a reversal of of that original narrative in the anti-narrative or redemptive narrative of what he now understands after he sees the risen Christ. Now, as you take your notes on what we're about to unfold here, keep in mind that you've got two columns, imaginary columns. A column under the position section on the left-hand side, a column on the under under the opposition side on the right-hand side. You don't want to press too far across the page when we're talking about the left-hand side, so it'll leave you space to write on the right-hand side if you're interested in writing any notes about what we're going to be exploring here. 
All right, so the perception of Jesus of Nazareth by Saul of Tarsus before the Damascus Road. We begin with his perception that Jesus of Nazareth was a criminal. How did he know that Jesus of Nazareth was a criminal? Ben? More poignantly, or more precisely, he was crucified. Crucifixion in that era, Greco-Roman period, 1st century A.D., was a punishment generally reserved for and carried out upon criminals. The death of this man, says Saul of Tarsus, The death of this man is the death of a criminal. This man cannot bring life because he is a criminal offender. He is not a good person. Now, that narrative is changed as a result of the resurrection. And the anti-narrative is that Jesus of Nazareth is not a criminal. How did he know that? The cross made him dead, right? He's a criminal. How does the narrative get reversed? The resurrection makes him alive. He's not a criminal. Not under the power of the death of the, the criminal death of a cross, no criminal would be raised up to life and to glory. This Jesus of Nazareth, says Paul on the Damascus Road, is the blessed, resurrected Son of God person. And he sees him in his risen persons, his risen being. All right, now, the point of this exercise is to help you perceive how Paul or Saul's narrative was altered to become Paul. How his perception of Jesus as an unconverted Jew is changed by one event, by the resurrection appearance of the risen Christ to him on that Damascus road. How important is the resurrection to the thinking of the Apostle Paul? It is absolutely central. Yes, the cross is important, but more important than the cross is the risen Christ because that's life, not death. The death is crucial, but He doesn't understand that death and its cruciality until he sees the risen Christ. There's nothing that's going to change him from thinking that Jesus of Nazareth is a criminal. Nothing is going to change him. God knows there's nothing that's going to change him unless he sees the alive, resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. And now he has to come to grips with all the previous narrative understanding he had of the life of this man from Galilee.
All right, that's what we're attempting to perceive. We want to enter into the mind, want to enter into the skin of the Apostle Paul in terms of how he thought before the Damascus Road and how he thinks, how he perceives, how he embraces after the Damascus Road. Which brings us to the next category. Jesus of Nazareth was a debtor to the law. He was a debtor to the law. He had to pay the price of being indebted to the law. Well, what was that price? According to Jewish tradition, the Jewish tradition taught that God takes away a person's certificate of debt to the law only when his merits tip the scales over his demerits. Now, that's a paraphrase of a direct quote from the Jewish tradition of this period, published in Edward Loss's commentary on Colossians, page 110, note 118. Now, I'm not giving you that detail for the sake of you making a note and running out and buying the commentary. It's a liberal commentary, so I wouldn't recommend it unless you could handle it critically. But what I am doing here is I'm acknowledging the primary source for my statement. And he has a direct quote from a Jewish source in which... He backs up that remark. In other words, there are the scales of your life. And God is weighing your merits and your demerits on the scale. And you're indebted by your demerits because the weight of the scale is going down against you. And the only way you can balance that is poor enough merits on the other side to even it out or to to make it excessive. In other words... Judaism of this period was a religion of meritorious work salvation, which is precisely what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians. So anytime you start hearing things about meritorious works, you better have your ears and your antenna up. Something's up. All right. Now, being crucified, Jesus of Nazareth then showed that he had more demerits than merits. That's the reason he was executed. He was not a good person. Now, the resurrection changes that narrative. It reverses that narrative. Jesus owes no debt to the law. He owes no debt to the law. How did Paul know that? The resurrection shows that he is not indebted to the law. He is not under the cursed indebtedness which God's justice requires. He's risen from debt and demerit and sits in glory debt-free, having paid his IOU to the law. He is the meritorious, resurrected Son of God person. Now, what I didn't mention here, I'll throw in at the end as a point of further clarification. Remember that Saul of Tarsus was a trained Pharisee. In all of the traditions of the Jews, including this matter of demerit and merit, the scales of justice. Now, yes, Reba?
Yes, he completely, he, he, proved, he proves that he's a meritorious figure, not a demeritorious figure. Otherwise, he couldn't have been risen, resurrected to life. <coughs> Particularly life out of a heavenly arena, but we'll get into that as we go down the, the uh, other categories. Keep in mind that he sees him out of the heavenly fiat theophany. All right, now the next element there is that Jesus of Nazareth was condemned. He was condemned by the Jewish courts. He was examined and declared guilty of crimes against the Jewish religion by the highest courts of the Jewish tribunals. He was sentenced to die by the highest religious courts of Judaism and declared guilty of horrible sins against God. He's not a good person. Our courts said so. Our religious leaders said so. Our theologians said so. All our high priests said so. What other conclusion can you reach? He's worthy in condemnation because the courts of our religion said he was worthy of condemnation. Now, the anti-narrative is obvious. It is obvious that he's not guilty. How does Paul know that he's not guilty? He wouldn't be in heaven and he wouldn't be appearing from heaven if he were guilty. He is the eternal, not guilty, resurrected Son of God person. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in heaven. Otherwise, he'd be in hell. All right, now, before the Damascus Road, Saul of Tarsus believed that Jesus of Nazareth was a dead corpse in a tomb. His body was consigned to and contained or shut up in a grave. Any report that his body rose from the dead, says Saul of Tarsus, any report that his body rose from the dead is a myth. Or it's a lie. A fabrication made up by his followers. He is not a good person because his body is a corpse in a grave or stolen away by his friends and hidden in some other grave. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. You must understand how contemporary that is. In how many Easter services in churches, Protestant churches, even some Roman Catholic churches, Throughout the world, that is the story which is believed, although it's not explicated that way, but that is the story that's believed. The body of Jesus, the corpse of Jesus, is in a tomb or in a grave or in, or in the ground somewhere. Because dead bodies don't rise. We're 20, 21st century scientific people. Dead bodies don't rise. We know that. Well, then what's going on in these churches where they don't believe that? They don't believe that the, in the bodily resurrection of Christ. They don't believe that his body is gone out of his grave or gone from being hidden somewhere else. Well, they talk about the resurrection. They talk about Easter faith. 
They talk about the hope of the future. Well, what hope is there if there's no real body alive from the dead? It's the hope that's manufactured by the good spirit of Jesus. Isn't Jesus a wonderful person? Isn't he an example worth following? Isn't it a wonderful thing for us to be here today in this Easter Sunday morning service talking about the ongoing spirit of Jesus? Not his body, because bodies don't rise. So all we can talk about is the spirit of Jesus that continues to animate our desires, our social justice campaigns, etc., etc. Borrow Jesus for whatever cause you're promoting. But the dead body, a really risen body of Jesus? No, no. No, no, no. We gave that up 300 years ago. We stopped believing in supernatural acts in history 300 years ago. We're smarter than those primitives back in the first century A.D. Well, they weren't really smart. They were duplicitous, weren't they? They fabricated a lie. And then they went off to die for that lie that they fabricated. There's a little problem there, isn't there? If you knew it was a lie, would you die for it when your life was on the line? Would you say, oh, no, um, to save my skin, I'll tell you the truth. We carried that corpse off to another garden and buried it somewhere else. And then we spread the story that he was risen so that it would make us look like good people, make us look like heroes. No, 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 no. You don't die for a lie, particularly for a lie when your life is on the line, that kind of lie. And if you might do it, 500 people who've seen him at one time aren't going to do it. All right, now, I paused to make this point simply because what Paul, what Saul of Tarsus believed about the dead body of Jesus of Nazareth is still believed even by people who profess to be Christians. It's still believed that dead body didn't rise. That's one of the reasons J. Gresham Meshon got kicked out of the Presbyterian Church USA, because he did believe in the bodily resurrection. There were a whole bunch of liberals in that denomination at that time, and there are still liberals in Protestant denominations today who don't believe it. I had a seminary professor who didn't believe it. He made a statement in class. If the bones of Jesus of Nazareth were authenticated and discovered tomorrow, it wouldn't make a difference to my faith. To my faith. Not one bit of difference. He made that statement. In fact, he made it during Holy Week, before Easter, in a class lecture. That's 1967. Do you think the progressives haven't advanced beyond that? Well, they have advanced beyond it. <clears throat> but not back to a bodily resurrection. They haven't gone back that. They'll never go back to that. All right. What reverses this dead corpse in a tomb conception or perception that Saul of Tarsus had of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, the Damascus Road. He's obviously not dead. He's not a corpse in a tomb. He's standing there right before me. I can see him. He's talking to me. He's speaking to me. I'm speaking back to him. I'm responding to him. He's not in a tomb because my eyes have seen the risen, glorified 
and seated at the right hand of glory, Son of God, person, in person. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Paul was kind of a psychotic, and he was prone to hallucinations, and he was depressed about this this work that he had to do, running around and getting people killed and executed, and so on and so forth. So he kind of he kind of had a, a a smite of conscience on that Damascus road, and he had a vision that projected his brain into another dimension. He didn't really see Jesus. Jesus didn't really appear to him. He just he just thought it was, or he manufactured it. You see, you've got all kinds of ways to get away from the basic, simple truth of the fact that he saw the risen Christ. If you don't really believe in supernaturalism, B.B. B. Warfield said, Christianity is supernatural religion if it's, no, if it's nothing. And without the supernatural, it is nothing. You get rid of the supernatural as the deists did in the 18th century. You get rid of the supernatural as the rationalists did in the 19th century. You get rid of the supernatural as the liberals did in the 20th century. You get rid of the supernatural. You haven't got real Christianity anymore. That's Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, the two opposite faiths. And the resurrection is key to that opposition. All right, next. You see how crucial this resurrection is? It's to you. It's so crucial to you. Not just the Saul of Tarsus, crucial to you. <laughs> Go ahead, Rima. Uh, the scripture that says that um, if, if he has not risen, then we are... Of all men most miserable, 1 Corinthians 15. Right. Yeah. Which is a statement of centrality to him. Yes. That yes. This is the point, is his resurrection. All right. If he's not risen, we're still in our sins. Our faith is vain. All right, now the next category. The original position of Saul of Tarsus that Jesus of Nazareth is an imposter. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ of God, made himself equal with God as the very co-equal Son of God. His hands and feet nailed to a cross prove that these claims are preposterous, fraudulent, and mendacious. He is not a good person. And the reverse narrative? He is the Son of God. And how did Paul know? He sees him resurrected in the glory of his divine Son of God arena. He's in the glory of his divine Son of God arena when he appears to Paul on the Damascus road. Truly, he's not only Messiah, he's not only Christ, he is the Son of God and I see him face to face. He is the divine Savior of me, chief of sinners. He is God in the flesh, as he claimed to be. I see it. I hear him speaking. I speak to him. He responds to me. These are not cunningly devised fables. This is the warp and woof of objective, true truth history. And that history is essential to your history. Because that story is essential to your story. 
All right, now the next category is that Saul of Tarsus believed that Jesus of Nazareth was worthy of eternal torment. For his blasphemy and his deceit, Jesus of Nazareth is worthy of eternal flames and hellish torment. He is not a good person, and he deserves the punishment, the final and absolute punishment for not good persons. Well, the anti-narrative or the opposition to that, Saul, Paul on Damascus Roads, has that story changed? How did he know? How did he know that he was not worthy of eternal torment? Does he appear to him out of hell? Out of heaven. He's not in hell. He's in heaven. I see it with my eyes. That's his heavenly arena and heavenly glory. I have seen him resurrected and alive in heaven, in heaven's glorious light and radiance. He is revealed to me as the heavenly, glorious Son of God person. Do not minimize the impact of this appearance of the risen Christ. It was seeing heaven's glory on that Damascus road. It was seeing the arena, the atmosphere of heaven on that Damascus road. That's what the Apostle Paul saw with his eyes, heard with his ears, felt when he fell down on the ground as if he were dead and had to be raised up. Well, I won't push that too far. All right, next. Saul of Tarsus believes that Jesus of Nazareth joins or is part of a parade of the enemies of Judaism. He is to be numbered with the long parade list of rulers, powers, and authorities which are hostile to Judaism, an ignominious parade of hostile forces arrayed against the people of God. He's not a good person because he marches with all the hostile enemies of our religion. No. Paul on the Damascus Road says, I have seen the risen Christ leading a victory parade. Publicly displaying his triumph over the forces hostile to the people of God. He's marching at the head, at the van of an entourage which is triumphing over those hostile forces arrayed against us. Death and sin and indebtedness to the law and eternal judgment and condemnation. This Resurrected Son of God person is victor over the powers of darkness and leads them captive to his captivity. We follow in his train. We are marching in that victory parade. So Paul can use that image there 
in the 15th verse of a public victory parade, very similar to a parade of the Roman legionnaires as it went through the streets of Colossae from time to time. Now, finally, we deal with the element of shame. Before his conversion, Saul of Tarsus believes that Jesus of Nazareth has publicly shamed his people. The Jewish people, the people of God more generically. He has openly shamed and embarrassed them by his criminal behavior and speech for which he suffers the ultimate penalty of crucifixion and death. The shame of the cross marks Jesus of Nazareth as not a good person. But the anti-narrative is that he despises the shame and willingly humbles himself to the cross. Crucified in meekness, he's raised in power and might. Paul on the Damascus Road can say, I have seen him in his exalted, no shame glory, the glory of heaven and heaven's throne room. I have seen him, this resurrected son of God person, sitting at the right hand of eternal life and light and immortality. That is the shameless story of this risen Jesus. Now, we have tempted to go a step further or a step deeper into the perception of Jesus, which Paul proclaims and writes about to the Colossian Christians in this epistle. I admit that these categories are not in the text per se, but they are behind the text in the transition which occurs in Saul of Tarsus's life. And so that part of his own biography, his narrative biography, the narrative biography of Saul of Tarsus, which becomes the narrative biography of Paul of Damascus, that narrative biography takes hold of his character, his personality, the way he thinks, the way he writes, the way he appeals to others to enter into that very same narrative drama that changed him. It is not a matter of intellectual head knowledge. It is a matter of being attached to the life of a person, the resurrected life of a person, of having encountered that risen Christ and saying, my life before is dead to me. My life now is alive to me in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, the union with Christ's motif, the being in by possession of the Son of God resurrected and glorified. That's the power to change a a hardened and bitterly opposed life of Saul of Tarsus into the greatest theological mind the the Christian church has ever seen and this wonderful apostle to the Gentiles and to the Jews who would believe. It is that aspect of the drama of his life in the drama of his encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road that keeps us thinking 
about why this transition from death to life, why this resurrection idea is so important to Paul's epistles. In every one of them, he alludes or he describes or he uses the category of the resurrection or the risen Christ Jesus. It more than anything else is what defines him. I know that sounds like an extreme statement. But it is the thing that changed his life, you see. It becomes that which, in, which animates every part of his thinking and his writing and his preaching and his dealing with people. It's that central feature. Saul doesn't become Paul unless he goes by way of the Damascus Road. He doesn't go past the foot of the cross at Calvary. He doesn't go past even an empty tomb in a garden in Jerusalem. He doesn't go past the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus called his disciples, some of them. It's the Damascus Road where he goes from death to life himself. Because the once dead Christ, whom he thought was unworthy, is the worthy, risen Son of God in glory. And I have seen him, and I believe him, and I will be his servant wherever he sends me. I will carry his message to the ends of the world. Saul, I have called thee to be my ambassador to the Gentiles. Now, wouldn't that have caused you to question the voice of one commissioning you if you were a Jewish Pharisee? Pharisee, I've called you and I'm commissioning you to the Gentiles. Gentiles? Those unworthy pigs? But he doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't bat an eye. Once again, further confirmation of the fact of the reality of this transformation, this vision, this substantive risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Now, yes, he had to be taught. And he went off to Arabia probably to be taught directly by the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit in ways which we don't understand. But you see the results of that teaching in all these epistles. Which brings us back again to the narrative element. If you reduce Paul's epistles to mere dogma, you, you, you lose part of the vital life of the letters. His life is here. His biography is here. His narrative biography is here. Is what, is, what Christ is to him as a life, as a narrative, as a biographical figure, as an historical figure, that is what uh, draws him, empowers him, deepens him, enriches him. His teaching is excellent, but his teaching is accentuated. It is amplified. It is enriched and deepened when one begins to think of the biography of the apostle out of his union with the biography of his Savior. For these reverse paradigms are a paradigm of joining you unto that Savior. Joining you in reverse reflection, reverse Drama. No longer dead, but alive in Christ. 
No longer guilty of sin, but forgiven of sin in Christ. No longer indebted to the law, but having satisfied the law in Christ. No longer subject to the principalities and rulers and authorities of darkness, but made alive in Christ Jesus, who leads you in his victory parade over them. All of this story of the risen Christ becomes your story as you are drawn by faith into its riches and deepness. So come, come further. Come deeper. Come down into the profound depths of the life of the risen Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God in power and glory. Come there and live. Live. Any questions before we go to the break? All right, we'll go ahead and stretch your legs. Enjoy, enjoy your break. Yes, Reba? Um, so, in Worthy of Eternal, let's see, joins a parade of enemies of Judaism that Jesus did. And so, Paul's impact, you know, impactful experience with Jesus would make him an enemy of Judaism. Yes, yes. He would become... An, an enemy in the sense that the, he's he's preaching the fulfillment of Judaism. He's not an enemy to the Old Testament. He's not an enemy to the doctrines of God revealed in the Old Testament or even the redemptive history, the life of redemptive history revealed in the Old Testament. But he is a uh, he's an advocate of the fulfillment of that history. So he's not an enemy of Judaism per se, as if he's running around with hostile anti-Semitic slogans. No, that's not the point. He's running around with a message of fulfillment and accomplishment. Judaism has been satisfied. It's found its destiny. It's over. But in a, but in a like merit versus unmerit. Demerit. Demerit. Uh-huh. In, in that kind of a way. Or the, the Once again, he'd be saying fulfillment. You know, if you're concerned about the relationship between merit and demerit, I have the meritorious Savior who is taking care of all of your demerit. You're no longer talking about being weighed in the balances in terms of whether you can get enough good works to balance your bad works. Christ has done all the work to satisfy completely. That make sense? Okay. Okay, moving on to verse 16 of chapter 2. Let's have the Bible open and I'm going to read the passage. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, we begin with this language asking from what cultural background does the language arise? And I'll throw that out to you for your response. Judaism and the Old Testament background. Yes, that's clear, I think. From what clue? What's your clue that that's what's behind it? Sabbath is one. Okay. 
stronger word yet. It, all of those are, are true. But the, the two words that give it away are the Sabbath and... Festivals. 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 All right, now, this language here is a type of language. It's a category of language. What kind of language is it? What category of Jewish culture is this language? You have to ponder that one. And, of course, I know the answer because it's what I want to get out of you. But let's think about the kind of language it is, and then we'll ask a question whether it's the language of every element in the verse. What's a new moon? It's a religious festival, okay. It's, it's part of the festivals. He separates it out, interestingly, here. <clears throat> okay, what are those religious festivals? What what would we call them? What, what kind of category of event are they? Astronomical. Astronomical in the case of New Moon? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the ethos of it. In other words, what kind of, of, of element it suggests or... It, it comes from. Yes, that's the word we want. That's one word. And what's a synonym for ritual? Ceremony. Yes, very good. A pluses. All right. Now, ceremonial or ritual language, that is, the language here has to do with ceremonial religious rituals. Does all of the language refer to ceremonial religious rituals? Aha. We would say it appears to, and yet that's strongly accepted with respect to what word? Yes, the Sabbath here is not regarded as ceremonial or religious ritual language. The Sabbath here is regarded as Ten Commandment language, and that that throws a fly into the ointment, doesn't it? Well, at least it does for me, but at any rate, we're not going to deal with that today, but we face the issue if Paul is using consecutive language here, he's putting them all in the same sentence or all in the same phraseology, and he's consistent that... Uh, food and drink is ceremonial ritual. Festival ceremonial ritual. New moon is ceremonial ritual. And Sabbath day here shouldn't be capitalized. It's also ceremonial ritual. But as I said, we'll deal with the last word in the sequence next time. Right now we want to deal with the word festivals. Religious ritual ceremonial. Festivals. Name some of them. And don't say new moon. Passover is one. Let's do them let's do them through the calendar of the Jewish year. So Passover is first, isn't it, Mark? 
Yes, <clears throat> remember, it marks the beginning of the year for the Jews. Celebration of Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as it's called in the Old Testament sometimes. <clears throat> what comes next in the Jewish calendar? Well, let's take the Christian calendar. What comes after Easter? What's the next? Pentecost, Pentecost, correct. Now, it's not called Pentecost in the Old Testament. What's it called? It is Pentecost, in fact, but it's not given that label. That's a New Testament label. Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks. All right, so we have Passover number one. Feast of Pentecost, or weeks number two. What are they celebrating at Passover? Marge, you put it out there. What are they celebrating at Passover? Was it deliverance on the night when the angel of death passed over the homeless? They got life and not death, didn't they? Yes, they're celebrating redemption from bondage in Egypt. All right. What are they celebrating at Pentecost, or first fruits? Oh, I gave it away. <laughs> we feast for weeks. <laughs> They're celebrating the first fruits of the grain harvest in the spring. That's the reason it's sometimes called first fruits. All right. Uh, those are the first two. Are there any more? Yes. What is it? <laughs> feast of Tabernacles. Correct. Or sometimes called... The Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Booths, because they constructed little uh, leafy uh, temporary dwellings. They called them booths or sukkoth. What are they doing during the Feast of Tabernacles? When is it celebrated? If Pentecost is in the spring, or the... It's a fall... It's, a, it's the Jewish fall Thanksgiving. It's the ingathering of the final harvest. All right, now those are the three major festivals. And let's take a look at the passages, a couple of passages in Scripture where they're uh, laid down, where they're instituted. Let's go back to Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 16. It's interesting. If, if you were uh, memorizing Scripture, this would be an easy one to memorize. Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. We've listed three of these festivals. And you'll notice that that number appears here in Moses' record. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be what? With one word, Passover. And at the Feast of Weeks, which would be what with one word? Pentecost. And the Feast of Booths, which would be what with one word? Or? One word? One word? Synonym? Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. In other words, they're to bring offerings with them when they come. <clears throat> All right, so there's one place 
where those three feasts which we've identified are laid out because they are the most significant feasts of the Jewish year. They mark uh, patterns in the Jewish calendar and they're still observed in traditions today. But I also want you to look at Exodus 23, verses 14 to 17. And as you examine or scan those verses, Exodus 23, verses 14 to 17, as you scan those verses, I want you to tell me what literary device you notice in those four verses. Exodus 23, 14 to 17. Three times. Three times? Mm -hmm. Not quite what I was looking for. Not that it's not there. Well, they're commandments. They are. I'm looking for a literary device. Rhetorical device. The inclusio, good for you, reader. Yes. Notice the inclusio, verse 14 and 17 are exact duplication. Well, not exact duplication, but they are a, a symmetrical duplication. And they frame what goes bef- between, what's in between. So, verse 15, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Eve. Which is, for in it you shall come out, you came out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty handed. Aviv is the first month of the Jewish calendar year. On our calendar it's in the spring. Also you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits. There you have it. We call that what? Pentecost. First fruits of your labor from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of ingathering. We call that what? Tabernacles, you're doing very well. At the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. So there's another uh, instance in which these three feasts are placed together as the annual pilgrimage feasts of the Jewish calendar. And in fact, in the Exodus account, they're actually framed by an inclusio that sandwiches them in order to make them particularly prominent because they were very important. And of course, very special and very celebratory. All right, now back to Colossians 2 as we continue our discussion of this language. What about these feasts? What about this ceremonial or ritual language, these ceremonies or rituals? How enduring, how lasting, how permanent were they? Are they temporal or perpetual? They're temporal. They're temporary as well as being temporary. So we should say temporary. They're not perpetual. How long did they last, particularly the festivals? We think about the three festivals that we just identified and read about in the Old Testament. How long were they to last? As long as the temple was standing. As long as the temple was standing? I would say a little more precise than that, although... I understand uh, why you make that as a demarcation. The coming of the Messiah. Yes, the coming of Christ himself. With the coming of Christ, they are finished. They project Christ's coming and his work in certain ways. 
And therefore, when he comes and performs his work, they are completed. They are finished. They are fulfilled. So they describe what kind of events. These ceremonial or ritual events are symbolic. They're symbolic, intending to reveal the better things which come with the incarnation of the Son of God. And when the better things come, do you need the previous things? In other words, are you under obligation to celebrate Passover? Pentecost as a feast of harvest? Or tabernacles as a feast of booths or in gathering? Are believers under obligation to celebrate those now? No, you're not. And why are you not? Because they have been canceled or annulled, fulfilled and completed, accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Savior. We are not bound by these ritual, ceremonial symbols of the Old Testament or of the Jewish calendar because they have been completed. They have been replaced. They have been displaced by far better things. Well, how do we know that? Well, let's begin with 1 Corinthians 5, 7. First Corinthians 5, 7. question is, how do we know that they are no longer binding upon us? How do we know that they've been completed and fulfilled? How does 1 Corinthians 5, 7 tell you that? Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. He has been sacrificed and therefore no more Passover sacrifices. Not necessary to celebrate Passover by killing a lamb and spreading the blood on your doorpost, etc. Does that mean it's wrong to be educated about the way Passover is observed? No, it's not wrong to be educated about it or to learn about it, but to believe that it is something that binds your conscience and that you should observe as a Christian believer is for you to retreat to the beggarly elements of the former era to the symbols and ceremonies and not to the reality. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have Christ or would you rather have a lamb, bleeding lamb? Christ is far better, is he not? Which is what the apostle is saying here. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, we don't need to sacrifice any Passover lambs anymore and we don't need to observe the Passover of the Jews anymore, the Passover of the Old Testament, because it's been completed. It's been fulfilled. It's been replaced because it's been displaced by Christ himself, who is the Lamb of God, the eschatological Lamb of God. He is the last Passover Lamb. All right, so there's a reason. There's a biblical text which tells us explicitly why we're not observing Passover any longer. All right, now the next festival was the festival of Pentecost, or first fruits, turning further ahead in First Corinthians to fifteen, chapter fifteen, verse twenty. 
statement also duplicated in verse 23. What language does the apostle use in 1 Corinthians 15, 20? We talk about Christ. Yes, he is the first fruits, first fruits of those who sleep. Verse 23 duplicates that. Here Paul's using language which comes out of what we would call the Pentecost or the Feast of Harvest, Feast of Weeks. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He is the, shall we say, the harbinger. He is the one that leads the van of the resurrection of the dead as being the beginning of it. And that anticipates the rest of that harvest in due time. Well then, uh, what are the apostles doing in Acts chapter 2, celebrating Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks in that upper room? They're displaying their involvement and the Holy Spirit coming upon them is drawing them into the drama of being fruits of that eschatological Pentecost, that eschatological Feast of Weeks in which the Holy Spirit will harvest the nations. He will bring the nations into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus through the disciples of the risen Christ, their preaching, their teaching, their witness, their testimonies, etc. They are endowed by the power of the Spirit to go forth and bring the nations to the Savior. First fruits draws the disciples into its very power and observation by the blowing of the Holy Spirit and those flaming tongues that were above their heads in that Jerusalem upper room on that first Pentecost day. So, Feast of Weeks in which we go out and harvest grain and offer it up, no longer necessary. That's been completed and fulfilled in the the harvesting of Christ's dead body and raised up to glory at the right hand of the Father. All right, now the third one is the Feast of Tabernacles. Is there any New Testament passage that talks to us about the Feast of Tabernacles? Let's go back to the Gospel of John, and particularly chapter 7 of John's Gospel. Turning to verses 37 and 38. And you'll notice that Jesus on the last day of the great day of the feast stands and cries. Now, what feast is this? Well, if you look back to the second verse of the chapter, that feast is identified. And what is it? Or the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's Jesus in Jerusalem on the last day or the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And what's he do? He stands up and says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers or streams of living water. Now that doesn't seem to say very much about tabernacles particularly in the Old Testament, because there's no 
water ceremony in the institution of tabernacles in the Old Testament. So what's Jesus doing? He's addressing a ceremony that came into Judaism as a result of intertestamental practice. The ceremony in which the high priest would go from the temple down to the pool of Siloam and take a censer or a little pot of water, carry it up to the temple and pour it out on the altar. And he'd do that every day through the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, on the last day, on the last day, Jesus stands and says to the crowd, as the priest is bringing this water up to the temple, Jesus stands and says, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for out of him will flow streams of living water. What's Jesus doing? Saying, I'm the living water. I'm the water ritual. I'm the, the, the point of which your water ritual is attempting to display. And that means that this ritual is over. Because I'm richer and the water I give is the water of, of, of life that is unto eternal life, as he says elsewhere. So Jesus is taking aim at a specific part of the observance of the Feast of Tabernacles in his own day. And he's standing up before the people in the temple where it's celebrated at its greatest height and saying, I am the meaning of this ritual. You don't need this water anymore. I am the source of living water. Come to me and drink and live. This water, no, not anymore. All right, now the next thing Jesus says at this feast is in verse 12 of chapter 8. No, the story of the woman taken in adultery is not authentic. It doesn't belong there, so you skip it. Because the next thing Jesus says is, I am the light of the world. We know that that woman taking an adultery story shouldn't be there because it breaks up the flow of what was going on on the Feast of Tabernacles. What Jesus, what's the significance of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world? In Jesus' day, the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was accompanied by huge oil pots up on poles that were lit every night in Jerusalem. They surrounded the temple court and they cast the light all over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus says, I am the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm not just the light of Jerusalem. I'm not light the world, light of Jews. I'm the light of the world. These lights from these oil pots above the level of the tabernacle walls and so on, the temple walls and so on, these lights will pass away. I am the light of the world extending to Jew and Gentile alike. Tabernacles is over. The light ritual is over. I'm greater than this light ceremony. I'm greater than this water ceremony. I'm greater than these ritual symbols because I'm the reality of those symbols. That's a stunning claim, isn't it? That's the kind of thing that God him crucified. But because Jesus fulfills these 
Old Testament festivals, particularly these three great festivals. And he does so in ways which are explicitly mentioned in the New Testament texts. Because he does it, we are, con- we are confident and comfortable in saying we are no longer bound by the observance of ceremonial Passover, ritual Pentecost or weeks, and symbolic tabernacles or booths. Those symbols have passed away. Those rituals have passed away. Those ceremonies are over because they have passed away. A more excellent thing has come in Christ Jesus himself. Not about the festivals per se, but about the temple. All right, now, <clears throat> if the ceremonial and ritual language or symbol has passed away, that's going to affect every element of this verse. And that leaves us with the, uh, the tension with respect to the Sabbath and is a discussion which needs to be elaborated in its own right. But right now we have concluded that the language of the apostle here is the language of ceremonial Judaism. It is the language of ritual Judaism. It is the language of symbolic Judaism. It is the language of Judaism fulfilled, completed, replaced, and displaced. It is a language which does not bind the Christian anymore. He is free from the observance of these elements. We'll take on the Sabbath in detail next time. But we have concluded that the consistency of the Apostles' language is the language of that which is symbolic, temporal, temporary, bound to pass away, to be annulled and canceled because of the greater fullness which came in Jesus Christ. Yes, Ben. It is a plural, but it could be a collective plural. Uh, it can also be translated Sabbath rest as the Septuagint translates the very same Greek word. So <clears throat> there are there are nuances to the term, but we'll focus on the Sabbath day. In other words, we'll take the phrase Sabbath day, which is used here, and uh, we'll deal with it in terms of this issue of ceremonial or ritual or temporary versus moral, permanent, and eternal. We're at the grapple with this because, of course, it's a very live issue in the life of the church. Any questions or other comments? Yes. What about the feast of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is not a biblical feast, but thanks for bringing it up. It is a feast that the Jews observe, but it's not a biblical feast because it occurs during the intertestamental period. It's also known as the Feast of Lights, and they celebrate it in observance of the cleansing of the temple by the Maccabees, after Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated it by sacrificing a pig to the image of Zeus in it. 
That's about 164 B.C., I believe, if my memory uh, serves me correctly. Uh, we've, we've dealt with that in some detail in our series on the book of Daniel. But since it's not an inspired scripture, the book of Malachi is closing the canon of the Old Testament about 400 B.C., so it's before uh, 164 uh, it, it is nonetheless the restoration of the temple to its purpose. And, uh, and so it's a happy event, but it's not a, a feast that Paul is thinking about here in terms of the Old Testament, the inspired Old Testament festivals, as they are labeled by that language festival in the Old Testament texts. The only other one we might think about is Purim which is also a biblical feast out of the book of Esther, but it doesn't have the prominence of the three that we we did mention. All right, well, let's close in prayer, and you're on your way with the Lord's blessing. We thank you, our great Lord and Savior, for the drama of your revelation, particularly that drama as it altered the life of Saul of Tarsus. How we thank you for Paul the Apostle, and for what he has left by record in his epistles, and what he has left by understanding in the drama that occurred in his encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, that crucial life-changing event, an event which affects us. We've been changed from life, from death to life as well. We've been changed by Christ, the risen Christ, Christ who is not dead but alive, not guilty but innocent, He's not condemned but justified. He's not in debt, but he's cleared of debt. He's not leader of a train of enemies. He is leader of a train of victors. Lord, we thank you also for this instruction with respect to this Jewish ceremonial language. We pray you and open our minds, encourage our hearts as we bring it to bear upon our own practice. Now go with us in the balance of this week. We thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ our Lord, and for our story, bound in union to his own story. Amen.